Please take your Bibles and turn with me. Thank you again, Andrea. Please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians 2. Last week we were in verses 1 through 6 of 1 Thessalonians 2, and we spent time in that passage considering ministry's motivation. As we did so, we learned through Paul's own testimony that his methods and his motivations in ministry were not compelled by greed or by deceit, or by uncleanness, or by flattery, or by manipulation. Rather, his ministry was compelled by one overriding reality, that God had called him to be a minister, and he was going to please God with his ministry. If God isn't pleased, ministry is meaningless. And that's what we talked about last week that as we seek methods and motivations for ministry, if God is not pleased, then our ministry is not right. And we talked about it not just in terms of your pastor as we applied. Uh, We talked about the fact that ministry goes well beyond simply what your pastor does up here on any given Sunday or any given Tuesday night or, or whatever the case may be. That ministry happens in many different ways, both inside and outside the church. And we talked about the different ways that ministries is found in this church. Whether it's my wife who gets up and plays the piano, whether it's the Praymans who clean the church every other week or, or um, help us set up, or the Schmitz who aren't here tonight but who regularly help us tear down on Tuesday nights, or Matt who's up there making sure that I don't blow your eardrums out with my yelling or, or that, that you can't hear me, which I don't think would ever be a problem. But uh, regardless, the various ways in which we each minister, and, and we were compelled last week to remember that as each of us ministers, or as we talked about this morning in, in our morning service, that parents, you have a ministry to your children. And as we talked about each one of these elements of ministry, Uh, We were reminded last Sunday evening that we must be motivated not as pleasing men. We can't be motivated by applause or by praise or are they going to recognize me or are they even going to appreciate what I do, but much rather we must always keep in mind that God is the one that matters, that if we're pleasing God, that if we're serving as unto the Lord, then whether or not we get the praise of men, whether or not we get the recognition of men, whether or not we get properly sufficiently um, materially compensated for our efforts, if God is pleased, then we should be pleased. And as we formulate this philosophy of ministry, a philosophy that is intent upon pleasing God rather than pleasing men, something amazing happens. In our zeal to please God, our love for the men and women unto whom we minister begins to grow in a manner that can only be explained by saying that we begin to love people as God loves them. That all of the external motivations, that all of the external compensations, that all of those things which normally would be the reason why we do anything on this earth, that all of those reasons fall away and our motivation is purely God's pleasure and our love for those to whom we minister. 
whether that's our children, whether that's our church, whether that is a Bible study, whatever it might be, as we begin to seek to please the Lord exclusively, God knits in your heart a love for those to whom you minister. The old song says it this way, Help me see this world, dear Lord, as though I were looking through your eyes. And the end of the song says this, For if once I could see the world the way you see, I just know I'd serve you more faithfully. If we could just see men and women the way God sees them, if we could glean a heart like God's heart for people, loving people the way God loves them, understanding people as God understands them, well, then all of a sudden, all of the things that might matter so much in ministry, recognition and praise and compensation just fall away to a mindset of love, of selfless love for those to whom we minister. Seeing people the way God sees them. You seeing me the way God sees me. Me seeing you the way God sees you. You seeing your neighbor, your family, your friends the way God sees them. And if we can do that, the way we minister will change. Tonight, I'd like us to consider again the example of Paul as he continues to give his testimony of his ministry among God's people. And as we seek to learn how to obtain the mindset of a minister. Please take a look with me. We'll begin in chapter 1 for context and we'll read through... Cha- through uh, uh, excuse me. We'll, we'll begin in chapter 2, verse 1 for context and we'll read through verse 12. We're not going to go all the way back to chapter 1. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain, but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. That's what we spoke of last week. For neither at any time... Used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear to us, unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are our witnesses and God also how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom. And, his, and glory. 
Paul begins in verse 7. We'll pick up in verse 7 this evening. And Paul begins in that verse with a description of his ministry as one of gentleness. That word literally meaning kind or mild. And the metaphor Paul uses to describe this gentleness is the metaphor of a nurse or a nurturer caring for her children. It would not be a stretch to put the word mother into this context, even though the word gives a much more broad idea of any person who is delegated to the task of nursing a child or nurturing a child. You know, my little boy is a little bit better than seven months old now. He's on his way to eight months. And while I oftentimes do indeed call him a monster, he is in fact quite delicate. Now he's a big boy and uh, he's getting teeth faster than we can count them and all of these sorts of things. But, but he is quite delicate. He's small. He's young. His muscles aren't very strong. He can sit up on his own now. That's pretty exciting. That's only been a couple of weeks in the making. My wife and I take care to cherish him, to nurture him, to care for him. He can't walk, so we carry him. We don't say, why can't this kid walk for himself? Let him lay there until he figures out how to walk on his own. When it's bath time, we don't just fill up the tub and toss him in. We'll do that with the girls, but we're not about to do that with Benjamin. Fill it up and be like, okay, Benjamin, splash. That doesn't work. He's not old enough. He can't handle that yet. He's, he's too young. We carefully hold him. We carefully wash him. We make sure he's safe. We make sure he's comfortable. We make sure he's fed. We make sure his sisters don't squish him. We understand that Benjamin can't fully communicate, can't fully understand our expectations, and so we treat him as such with gentleness and care. And as Paul speaks of how he treated this young church when he first got to Thessalonica and people were first getting saved, he says he treated them as a nurse would cherish her children. This must also regularly be the mindset of the minister. There's a time for tough love, but oftentimes that's not with the infant Christian any more than it is with the infant, infant. As ministers, we simply can't expect people to get it all the first time around. Sometimes people need patience, understanding, and care. Gentleness. Maybe you've been sharing the Gospel with a friend, a family, a loved one, and they're not getting it. You know them. You know what they need perhaps better than I do, but... Have you ever tried gentleness? Paul said, when I approached you, this is how I approached you, Thessalonian church, with gentleness, as a nurse cherisheth her children. Paul didn't bowl these men and women over with theology and expectations. Paul did whatever he could to show spiritual and physical love toward these men and women, which, which would allow him to teach things that perhaps they wouldn't have otherwise received. We'll see how he did this a little bit more later on in the context. But notice verse 8. Paul says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. 
This is the verse that truly is the crux of what we're speaking about this evening, though we'll, we'll spend time in several more verses. The beauty of these words as the heart of the minister. The word translated affectionately desirous here is this is the only time this Greek word is found in the New Testament and it carries the idea of longing for something, wishing for something, deeply desiring something, just longing, a, a deep longing, a affectionate desire for something. The implication is that Paul sees the spiritual condition of these men and women of more value and of more personal importance to him than even himself. So much so he says that he would be willing, if it were possible, to impart unto them his own soul. And it wasn't just him, it was all, it was Timothy and um, Silas as well. About a week and a half ago, my whole family was very sick. We were all very sick for almost three weeks. And every time that happens, it's only happened twice since I've been a father. It was this past December and then this past May when my wife was about ready to have Benjamin and the whole family was sick as well. There's something amazing that I've realized. I'm more miserable when my children are sick than when I am. I don't know if it's that way with other parents in this room, but part, and maybe it's kids get older, it's not quite as miserable. But for my children, who are, are very young and uh, can't take care of themselves well and can't express well all the time what's going on, and particularly little Benjamin, because he can't even speak yet, when my children are sick, I am miserable, far more miserable than when I myself am sick. My love for my children, my concern for their safety and well-being puts me in a place where I cannot help but wish that I could bear their illness upon me instead of them. Perhaps the parents here can relate to such emotions. And I believe in many ways this is the emotion that Paul speaks of here. The idea that when he saw these dear men and women and he saw where they were spiritually, perhaps before they were saved, and then as they just started to get saved, he was so desirous that they would follow the Lord and that they would do what is right and that they would serve the Lord with all their hearts that if he could, he would impart everything he had, everything he knew, every passion that was in him, every experience, every understanding. If he could pour it all into them, he would pour it all into them. He will do it as fast as he can. He will do as much as he can if only they would serve the Lord because his longing for them to stand before the Lord right before God was of such deep desire. Paul says that he and his fellow ministers were willing to impart unto them not just the truth, but to pour out their lives in whatever capacity necessary to validate the truth and to give them the truth that they needed to live. The word for life here in Greek, or excuse me, the word um, soul here, imparting unto you our own souls in the Greek, is a word that speaks of one's life, but more so the innermost part of your being, the very part of you that, that is you, your personality, if you will. He says, I would impart everything that I am if only you would walk before the Lord worthy because you were dear unto us. 
Paul was willing to yield any privilege, willing to give anything he had if only to see these men and these women have spiritual success. It's a beautiful picture of Paul's ministry. He continues in verse 9. He says, For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Verse 9 is a part of what Paul means when he says that he was gentle. Paul and his companions did not ask the church to support them. We see this not just in 1 Thessalonians, but we see it in 1 Corinthians as well. And it was likely Paul's MO, his modus operandi, his regular mode of operation when he would go into any church is he would purposefully be bivocational for the sake of not being like perhaps others that would come around who would spout their knowledge solely for the sake of being supported by people. Paul did not want anything to stand between these men and women and their acceptance of the truth. Certainly uh, notwithstanding, he did not want them to think that Paul was trying to con them. So he refused to be supported by them. And he says, much rather, they travailed, they labored night and day. They worked hard, supporting themselves, preaching the gospel, discipling new converts. Paul limited the liberty that he had as a minister of God to be supported by the church in order that he might win more souls to Christ. And that's the idea of Paul being willing to impart everything that he had. The soul of a brother was more important than his personal pleasure. The needs of a brother were more important than his own. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19-22, through as he spoke of his freedom in Christ, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. And to them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without the law, being not without the law to God, but under the law to Christ that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Certainly, we see in that parenthetical that Paul was not saying he became like a sinner in order to win sinners. We never see in the Bible an example of anyone who sinned or who got themselves into a lifestyle of sinfulness in order to try to win sinners. It doesn't work that way. That's, that's going outside of God's will to try to win people. It doesn't work. But what Paul did say is within the, within the liberty that God had given him in Christ, he did whatever he could to remove any barrier that would stand between anyone and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because he saw people the way God saw people. He loved people with the love that God had for people. Jesus Christ didn't come to die for a few. He came to die for all. Paul says, if Jesus Christ came to die for all, then certainly I can impart myself to all that I may by any means possible win some. Paul's was a life of sacrifice. And it was a life of sacrifice in love to win men and women to Christ and to see them stand before God holy. He would say in 1 Corinthians 10.33, Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they 
may be saved. He says, I'm not interested in personal profit. I'm interested in seeing those to whom I'm ministering saved grow in the Lord. And this is the mindset. Paul wasn't talking about becoming worldly to win the world, rich to win the rich, poor to win the poor. Paul never speaks of compromising the expectations of godliness for the sake of godliness. It's an absolute contradiction. Paul was talking about setting aside my own desires, my own comforts, my own ambitions, my own traditions in order to put myself in a position where I have removed every possible barrier to the spiritual growth of others. Paul worked on the side to provide for his needs so that the church would not need to provide for him. Paul taught into the long hours of the night because the churches wanted and needed teaching. Paul accepted beatings. He accepted imprisonments, suffering as long as he could see the believers grow in Christ. And this is what Paul means when he said that he would pour out his own soul for them. That he did not want to be heavy upon them, chargeable to them, severe to them. He wanted the Gospel to take center stage at all times. And so in verse 10, he calls them and he calls God as witness as he did earlier in the chapter. Verse 5. To his ministry and the ministry of of his companions that they ministered in a way that was holy, just, and unblameable. That no one could charge them of putting their personal motivations above the ministry that no one could charge them with being wolves in sheep's clothing simply there to devour the unsuspecting or the ignorant or the gullible. That their behavior was exemplary among the brethren. And what was the message that Paul sought to convey with his sacrifice? What was the message that compelled this mindset of ministry? We've talked about it throughout, but let's see what Paul says here in verses 11 and 12. What was it that consumed his soul so much that his life and his well-being was secondary to the message that he desired the people of God not just to know, but to understand and to live? Paul says in verse 11 that it was a message that he exhorted, one that he comforted, one that he testified or charged with the kind of patient and fervent love and concern that a father would direct toward his children. You know, I'm not at that stage in my life yet where um, I would understand all the ins and outs of the long game as it refers to um, my children. But as of now, my wife and I try to keep that mindset that as we raise our daughters, it's not about today's behavior. It's about the long game. It's not about whether or not today they did exactly what they were supposed to do, but whether or not one day they will recognize that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. They will recognize that there's a God in heaven who has expectations placed upon them and that they have fallen short of those expectations and that they will, because they recognize they've fallen short of those expectations, recognize their need for somebody to do for them what they could not do themselves. And that as they hear 
Daddy preach. And as we as a family open our Bibles in the morning and go through the Bibles together and memorize verses and sing songs, they will recognize one day that that person that did for the, that there has been a man that did for them what they could not do for themselves, that took upon himself the sin that they cannot conquer in themselves, and his name is Jesus Christ. And they will accept Jesus as their personal Savior, Lord willing, by God's grace. And that's, a, that's the first step in the long game. That as my wife and I discipline my daughters today, we're doing so not trying to curb behavior, but trying to show them that there's a heart attitude that needs to change. That there's something internal that, that needs to change because it's not just about their external. And then once they get saved, the long game will continue. And the next point will be to see that they understand the God who they serve understand His expectations, understand His love for them, and get to the point where they will desire to serve Him with all of their heart and soul and might. And it's not going to happen in a day or two days or in a month. It will be a process of years of training and of prayer and of living out a good example and of showing them what it is to serve the Lord and of showing them how it is that it's better to, to um, give than to receive and showing them how obeying God brings about far greater reward than simply following the temporary promises and pleasures of the flesh. That's a long game. And what Paul is describing here is to the best of his ability, his desire to play the long game with these Thessalonians to whatever degree he had. He didn't have long enough with them. You can feel that in his epistle. He wished he had more time with them. But he was exhorting them. He was calling them near. That word literally means uh, he was comforting them. He was witnessing. He was testifying to them. He was calling them alongside. He was helping them. He was doing what he could to help them see something very particular. What would set such a fire in the man's heart that directed every action and every inaction, every moment of the day that would bring about such a compulsion in his heart? Well, we see in verse 12, here it is, that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto His kingdom and glory. Paul's concern was that these dear men and women would obey God, that they would reflect their love for God in the manner in which they live their lives. I cannot help as I read these verses to get personal. So I'm going to get personal this evening and we'll transition to our application here in just a few minutes. There's still a little bit more teaching to go. But do you know why I'm up here? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday night why I'm teaching a class on Monday nights, why my phone is always on. Why my wife and I moved to the frozen north from Florida. Why we moved to where we're 16 plus hours away from our family. Why I accepted a position at a church when they could promise me no paycheck why I spend my weeks in study and prayer, why we have the services we have. Now, please don't, don't uh, misunderstand here. I'm not trying to 
to toot my own horn or make you think I'm something special, but do you know why I do what I do? Why my wife does what she does? Why she's back there struggling to keep two girls on their tushes by herself instead of with daddy there next to her, which is a, tri a, a trial and a struggle. Daddy, it'd be a whole lot nicer if daddy could be there helping mama out. The reason why is because all else, above all else, my wife and I desire God's people to walk worthy of God. Would to God my motivations and my sacrifices would be as deep as Paul's. Would to God I would be more willing to pour myself out unto God's people. Would to God I would lead my family into a heart of selfless and steadfast love for God. And would to God that you, each one of you individually, would benefit enough from my ministry that you would then bear the fruit of obedience to the God that saved you from your sins. Would to God one day you will burn with a consuming passion to serve the Lord with every fiber of your being. And if what I can do here behind this pulpit can help you take the steps to serving God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might and leaving behind all the cares of this world and the love of this world and the priorities of this world to pursue God more faithfully than every moment is worth it. It's my prayer that your love for God would boil out of you that your thirst for the truth would impassion you to ministry, to study, to learn, to know, that your fervent desire for a thriving relationship with the true and living God would overwhelm any desire for the things of this life. And this is why Paul did what he did. And by God's grace, this is why I do what I do. And parents, that should be why you do what you do. Towards your, towards your children. An evangelist, who, whoever you might be seeking to evangelize right now, or mentor, or disciple, that should be why you do what you do as well. And would to God, you would then live to minister unto others from that same passion that you would spend and be spent in concern for brothers and sisters in Christ who need to be discipled, that your willingness to step outside of yourself and pour yourself out on behalf of another would be the difference in them between a Christian life of mediocrity and a life of fervent and passionate service to God, that your consuming passion for God would drive you to bring others to that same passion. So we ask the question this evening, what does it mean to walk worthy of God? In this particular concept, we see the phrase used twice in the New Testament. Certainly we see it here. The other time we see it is in Colossians chapter 1. And I'd like you to turn there with me this evening if you would. Just back a little bit in your New Testaments to Colossians 1. What does it mean to walk worthy of God, walk worthy of the Lord? Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. He puts his name and Timothy's name on the epistle. 
And I'd like to pick up in verse 9. And we'll read through verse 17. Paul says this, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with, all, with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Colossians chapter 1 contains one of Paul's many great run-on sentences in his epistles. This sentence is long. I started at verse 9 and went to verse 17 because there's no period in between verses 9 and verse 17. And this particular run-on sentence is all about the need for God's people to recognize who God is, what He has done, and therefore to walk worthy of the God that they serve. If God has redeemed you, and God is the God of gods, the God of all flesh, the God who sustains all things, the God who literally holds the world in the the hollow of His hand, the God who sustains it, keeps it together, the God who created it, if that is the God that we serve, then serve Him and serve Him. So what did Paul mean when he said to walk worthy? Well, he defines it pretty well here in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, he, he just mentions it in First Thessalonians, but in Colossians chapter 1, he does actually define it pretty well. And he says in verses 10 through 12 that as they walk worthy of the Lord, there are various elements of this walking worthy. And the first, he says, is being fruitful in every good work, being fruitful in every good work, that there would not just be good work, but that there would be an abundance of good works, that good works, that serving the Lord, that doing those things which are righteous, that obeying the Word of God would be the obvious manifestation of your life in Christ. That's what it means to walk worthy of God, to do right, to do right, not to do wrong, not to be selfishly going after your own gain, but to do right before God. To be fruitful in every good work. Second, increasing in the knowledge of God. Not being satisfied simply with the fact that Jesus is God and that Jesus saved you from your sins, but growing to know the One who you serve because you always serve better ones who you know better, right? I tell you, I serve my wife in a different way today than I served her six and a half years ago. When we got married, I didn't know a whole lot about her in the, in the grand scheme of things. I knew I wanted to marry her. I knew it was the Lord's will. But I tell you, I've learned a lot in the past six and a half years. And the Scriptures tell us that in the same way I as a husband ought to be continuously learning about my wife, her likes, her dislikes, her needs, her 
her fears, her insecurities so that I can build her up, so that I can serve her the way she needs to be served. We ought to be increasing in our understanding of God so that we can better serve Him the way He wants to be served. How interesting it is. You know, I've learned over the past six and a half years that sometimes when my wife is having a bad day, it's not about going out and buying her flowers or her version of flowers, beef jerky. It's not about doing the dishes for her, though she sure wouldn't mind. It's about going and giving her a big hug. But you know, that took some time for me to learn exactly how much she just likes a big hug. And if I had stopped learning about her the day I married her, because I've won now, right? She's mine. I'd be missing out on much of the best ways that I could please, serve, and love my wife. If you stop learning about God simply because you know you're in, because you know you're saved, if you stop learning about who He is, what He expects, what He loves, what He hates, you're going to stagnate and you're not going to please God the way you could. You know, we, have, we serve a church, we, 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 are, we are in a, a broader church today that doesn't know God. And it's evident in the way that they serve Him. Why do we look at the church at large and say, wow, there's something missing? Because they don't know God. And so they don't know how to serve God. Do we have it all figured out at Legacy Baptist Church? Far from. But like that husband who's learning about his wife, dwelling with her according to knowledge, the Scriptures describe it, or that wife who's learning about her husband. We at Legacy Baptist Church are determined to continue to learn about our God and to grow, to increase in the knowledge of God. Why? Because that is what it means to walk worthy of the Lord, to increase in your knowledge of who He is, what He expects. Constantly learning. Be learning. Strengthened, he says thirdly, with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. So we seek his strength to be patient, to be long suffering, and to bear whatever we need to bear with patience and long suffering with joyfulness. To be a joyful people. To be a, a people that are not driven by the winds of circumstances but are rooted in the joy of our God regardless of the difficulties that come our way. It's a part of walking worthy of the Lord. Joyfulness, increasing in the knowledge of the Lord, being fruitful unto every good work. And then finally, he says, giving thanks unto the Father. A thankful people. We talked about it around Thanksgiving time. We should probably talk about it more often. God wants us to be a thankful people. If you're not a thankful person, if you're not thankful to God, if you're not compelled by thankfulness, if you're always compelled by discontent, you're not walking worthy of the Lord. No mention of circumstances. No mention of physical prosperity here. And as Paul ministered to these churches, and as he speaks to the Thessalonian church about his desire for them, his goal was simple. That as he poured himself out in ministry to God's people, as he poured what he knew about God into them, as he sought to pour his passion into them, as he sought to give them the truth of God's Word, his desire was that they would become a righteous, obedient, joyful, Thankful people. 
driven by a personal knowledge of the true and living God and a fervent devotion to God's will and to God's way. That's why I'm here. I don't know why you're here. But that's why I'm here this evening. It's my desire for you. This is why I minister. This is why I live in Buffalo. So that you will grow and grow and grow and grow spiritually until you finally come to the place where the coals that I seek to light every week in your heart become a raging fire, remain perpetually lit, driven by that inward consuming fire to please the Lord and to walk worthy of the Lord on your own, and then you can go and light someone else's fire and watch them grow and grow and grow. As we close this evening, I do so with a couple of very well-known quotes. It's very appropriate that this message came up this week. This past week was an anniversary. It was the anniversary of a death of a man. The death of a man who has inspired thousands upon thousands of Christians into a deeper walk with their Lord. On January the 8th, 1956, in Ecuador, a man named Jim Elliott was seeking to open up communications with a violent tribe of killers for lack of a better word. As far as in modern times can record, this is the most violent people group of the age in the 1950s. They were, uh, the life expectancy was in the 20s or 30s for people. You just didn't live to be an old man, to be an old woman. It was a eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth culture It was a, you have it, I want it, so I'm going to kill you for it culture. It was violent. It was godless. And Jim Elliott, along with a few companions, sought over a period of time to open communications with this tribe. There came a day when finally there was a face-to-face confrontation between them. Didn't go as planned. Through some miscommunications and uh, lies and deceit, they were, Jim Elliott and his companions were killed that day by these men and women of this tribe. And the airplane that they had flown in there was torn to to shreds and Jim Elliott died on January 8th of 1956. Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and those that were with them did not go to this violent, vicious people for fame or for recognition 
or for money or for power. He didn't train. He didn't work. He didn't pray so that people would remember him. He did what he did to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to one of the most needy people groups on earth. And he was killed because he willingly determined to pour out the very life that he had for the goal of seeing men and women come to know the true and living God. Jim would die that day. His companions would die that day. But it opened a door of ministry to that tribe. Others related to that group of men who had died that day would end up opening communication with this group and they would be saved. Gloriously saved out of their sin, out of their violence, out of their wickedness, out of everything that they had been steeped in. So that as the turn of the millennium and the century came and went, you can find elderly men and women in that tribe now. They'd never had anyone live long enough to be elderly in their tribe before. They talk about walking God's path. They talk about being peaceful, being loving, serving the true and living God through His Son, Jesus Christ as the gospel penetrated the hearts of those violent pagan people and turned them into children of God. Jim Elliot wrote quite often before his death. And these are two quotes from his life, from his writings. And I'll allow these quotes to close us out this evening. He said, Lord, make my way prosperous, not that I achieve high station, but that my life exhibit the value of knowing God. And then his second one, which is um, quite well known. I've said it behind the pulpit many times. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Ladies and gentlemen, that ought to be the prayer, the declaration of each of our hearts that we would be willing to give that which we cannot keep in order to gain the privilege of walking worthy of the Lord. Let's pray together.